<clears throat> two evenings ago, I spoke as part of the talk about the inner critic. And I'm quite aware, and I'm, uh, maybe you are too, that just because one devoted a quarter of a talk to it one evening doesn't mean that it's going to disappear. Then. So oftentimes that's a structure that's been around a long, long time, decades maybe. And a retreat like this uh, can bring it up. And sometimes uh, certain talks can bring it up. We can find the inner critic very alive, very well, very healthy, doing its job with uh, impeccable aplomb. And it's really there. And I know that for some of you, the talk last night, it it brought it up. I know that for some of you, just engaging in this kind of practice brings it up. Perhaps some of what I say tonight, again, it it will meet that place or it will be around. Can that just be okay? Can it just be okay that it's around? So there it is, doing its thing, doing its thing very well, and it's just part of what's going on. It's just okay that it's there. And perhaps another part of the being is listening, is listening, and is perhaps hearing some truth in what's being said. And it's just okay. It's just okay that the inner critic is there. Some part may be listening and shelving pieces for later. Some of what I say tonight is not in the realm of experience of actually anyone who's listening. And that's actually okay. I'm putting it out there partly because I want people who are interested to know what's available. And I think that's important. And partly because there's actually a a thread of one insight... One insight that has a thread from the most mundane, everyday, kind of obvious thing all the way to final liberation. And I kind of want to draw that thread out. Okay, so what I actually want to talk about tonight is the relationship of samatha and insight, the relationship of concentration and insight. Now, usually, or for the most part, what we might hear about this relationship is that, well, the most common thing that we hear about this relationship is that concentration, samatha, calming the mind, is a kind of preparation for insight. So you spend Sometime, a little time, or a lot of time, um, pr- calming the mind, concentrating the mind. Then you take that mind that's more calm, that's more clear because of that calmness and that concentration, and you start applying it to insight meditation, applying it to trying to notice everything that's going on in one's life and, and experience and understand that experience. And the calmness and the clarity are what prepares, prepares and enables the insight. And that's absolutely true, and it's fine, and uh, no, no problem with that. But there's actually much, much more to it than that. And just want, this is what I want to go into. Not only is it a preparation, but one finds that a mind of calm, a mind of, of some degree of samadhi, is, is actually like the best soil for the seeds of insight to take root in. So some of you have been on retreat before and you're, you're on retreat and you notice you have some insight about a personal difficulty, a personal pattern, a personality pattern or a more impersonal insight like impermanence or whatever and it seems so clear. Aha, got it. I got it now. And then the retreat ends and one goes home and sometimes it stays but sometimes it just 
what happened to that insight? It just we seem to have lost access to it, or it has lost its power to actually feel like it changes our life in any way. One of the incredibly important and potent things about samadhi practice is that it nourishes the soil in a way, so that seed of insight can actually really grow and take root really deeply in the being, in the way that insights really begin to change the heart and the life of of a person. And those insights stay. They stay in a way that's accessible. Now some of some of the uh, relationships between concentration and so I've already actually touched on, and so I'll just briefly go through them again. Confidence, I talked about that at some point, that slowly, slowly with somebody we get a sense of confidence in ourselves and our capacity to be happy and to feel well, and a confidence in our practice. That comes slowly. That's an indispensable part of insight. I know that I can be happy without whatever. It, as I also said before, it gives us leverage uh, to let go of perhaps what isn't that helpful to be attached to. There's a real sense of we have some place from which we can kind of pry open or pry loose many of our attachments. Really, really important. Faith comes, I mentioned that last night, slowly, slowly, faith comes in the teachings, in the path, that they actually really do lead where they're supposed to lead. A juice comes into the practice, a sense of juice, a sense of well-being is incredibly nourishing for the journey, for the path. Over time with samadhi practice, the mind also loses its infatuation with what's called papancha, this kind of addiction to complicating everything and, and building huge difficulties and complications around things. The mind just begins to kind of be less and less interested and infatuated with that process. More contentment comes into the life. Gradually, All this is part of what I would call a, a larger aspect of insight, insight being that which frees, that which frees. More, I touched on this too, more able and willing to explore renunciation. And the, the impacts that has as I touched in the opening talk on <coughs> climate change, etc. and all that. There is an easier understanding of all this Buddhist teaching about not-self, anatta, which can seem so mysterious, that actually begins to come clear through the samatha practice itself. And we begin to experience times, moments, periods, when that the self is, is very much in abeyance, very much less built up and less strong. This is something I'm going to come back to in this talk. The mind also gets very malleable over time. We're actually able to use the mind in a lot of different creative ways, particularly in meditation. When we talk about insight meditation, it's actually not one technique. It's a whole range of approaches. And the mind just gets able to, uh, to approach in different ways and, and to maneuver in different ways, to, to be used in different ways. And, and this I also go into, slowly, slowly as the samadhi deepens, we actually, something in the being is more open to hearing about what the Buddha talked about when he talked about cessation and cessation of the world or going beyond the world, which can sound so abstract and unappealing. Uh, There's something in there, we're actually more able to hear that. What I mostly want to explore tonight, though, apart, I mean, that was sort of a lot of review. What I mostly want to explore tonight is what we touched on this morning the nature of perception. There's something about perception and samadhi which is really, really key. And the understanding the way the mind, first of all, builds problems. We build problems. And following that even more thoroughly, more deeply, we actually build everything. I'm going to go into this. There's something about samadhi and understanding this building process. When the Buddha was enlightened, he uttered a spontaneous poem. I can't remember exactly, but it basically says, house builder, you've been seen. Some of you will will, will recognize it. House builder, you've been seen. Your ridgepole has been shattered, your rafters scattered or something. 
he'd seen completely through this building process. And that's how he described his awakening. I understand all this building that we human beings do. I understand it in a way that I can actually put it down. So that's this thread of insight that I, go, that I was talking about that went, goes from the most, in a way, obvious mundane all the way to awakening. It's one thread. So we're in our day, wherever we are, and we're in, we find ourselves in a bad mood or we are um, anywhere here on, on meditation retreat or anywhere and there's physical pain arising from whatever cause or we are perceiving another person either someone that we know or someone that we don't know and we're perceiving them in a they're a really terrible person or they're really stupid or they're really this or that we're, we're perceiving them in a certain way a Dharma question, how am I compounding that perception? This ends up being one of the deepest Dharma questions. How am I compounding, first of all, this suffering, and secondly, this perception? So I have a pain in the body. There's a number of Dharma questions that are really important. The first one is actually more basic. It's, am I aware of it? I'm in a bad mood. Do I know I'm in a bad mood? Or am I just kind of subjecting those around me to it and myself to it do I actually am I aware of it can I be with it that's part of the first Dharma question am I aware of it and can I open to it but the second Dharma question how am I compounding it or better put how is the mind compounding it how is the mind building it and adding to it this question pursued takes one all the way to complete awakening that's the question that needs to be answered. So, when we come to samatha, some of you are beginning to get an inkling of this already. We see that in the, in the samatha process, what the mind is doing is it's actually not building, or it's building less. It's building less problem. It's building less generally. And there's something, actually, and people have pointed this out in groups, there's something actually authentic about that. When we build things up, there's something a little inauthentic about that. I'm sort of building up some view or some perception of another person or perception of myself or perception of a situation. It's actually inauthentic. And there's something actually very authentic about not building, not not engaging in that process. You could say samatha is an act of not building, or the, the non, non-action of building. We're in a relationship with a partner, friend, spouse, mother, child, whatever, and we blow up about something. And how often afterwards, you get in such a tangle with the person and, and in oneself in relationship to, to what's going on, and then a little time goes by and afterwards you think, was that, was that even really necessary, what, we just, what just happened between us? The way, I, the way I got my knickers in a twist about all that. Was that even really real? Do you ever have that experience? Uh, some years ago, a work retreatant was describing a, a difficulty. I can't actually remember what it was precisely. A difficulty. And there was a lot of stuff, a lot of agitation around with the difficulty. And she would also experience periods of calm. And so I suggested to her at one time, when there's the calmness, when there's relative samatha there, how about dropping in some thoughts about the difficulty, just actually deliberately bringing it up and dropping it in like, like little pebbles into this pond of calm and seeing what happens. And perhaps there can be some clarity from the calmness to actually seeing one's way in this difficulty more. But what happened was she came back and said, when I thought about it, when I dropped it in, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Drop the pebble in, hardly any ripples. Certainly no big uh, tsunami. What's going on here? Is there something that's not present in a state of samatha which actually is needed to build a problem and build some agitation? 
And unless we go in and out of that experience and see this over and over, it, it will just remain theory. We actually need to see it and feel it for ourselves and go, okay, something's going on here. People have reported in the groups, the, the beginning to get a sense that the samatha is actually not a denial of our emotions and it's not a turning away from or running away from. Someone was saying, beginning to get a glimpse, oh, this emotional difficulty, it's just that I'm just not feeding it somehow with my attention when I'm with the samatha. It's, it's a different understanding of what's going on. It's not clear at first. It takes time to, for this actually to reveal itself, to become clear. So as the samatha deepens, as the samadhi deepens, I think I mentioned this, the sense of the self gets kind of weaker. The self, we take it so for granted, this is myself and this is who I am, this is my story, etc. As one goes into more and more into samadhi, we realize that whole structure of self just kind of quietens. It's like the house just gets smaller or something, less built up. We're actually not building up the self and the self-definition, the whole big... Um, Story and problem of the self is not being built up, built up so much as as the samadhi deepens. That's something that's actually happening as the samadhi deepens. Another thing that's happening is that you could say the world is not so built up. There's a kind of fading of what we might call the world. The world meaning the world of our experience. This everything that we see and our emotions and inner and outer world actually gets quieter. Self, the self and the world actually begin to fade a little bit. And that's an inherent factor of samadhi. It's one way of describing what samadhi is, in fact. And then there's a lot of insight in this, as this happens to whatever degree, even just a little bit or a lot or, or you know, tremendous amount, whatever. Who am I? when I'm not spinning the story. Who am I then? Who am I when I'm not thinking, when it goes that deep? Who am I when actually even the body has dissolved? Who am I? I tend to, of course, identify with this body, and with this story, and with my emotional content, and my thoughts. Who am I when all that gets quiet? And then it comes back, and then it gets quiet again, and it comes back, and it gets quiet. What's, what's, what's real? Who's the real me? The quiet one or the noisy one? And, and people have touched on this too, even as the self gets a little bit quiet, we, we jettison a little bit of our story structure and the kind of things that define us. There can be fear there. We're losing our familiar bearings, our familiar kind of scaffolding which holds our sense of identity and reality in place. And there can be fear there. And said at one point, it's a kind of acquired taste. One really gets to feel comfortable and reassured and safe and trusting in this, in this fading. And that's gradual. And one can go at the pace that one wants and ease into it and, and really be okay with that. But the fear is pretty common as part of that process. We need to understand this. At a certain point, there's actually more to samadhi than... Um, you know, the nice feeling and, and feeling a bit calm, which is great, really nourishing and everything. And I've I, been emphasizing that. But actually we need to understand something much deeper that has to do with insight. And we need to understand this connection. Sometimes a self is like this, big and noisy and uh, a raging ogre of whatever. And sometimes a self is very, very refined and very quiet or just normal or sometimes it's barely there at all and, and also the world, the world of our experience. We need to understand this and understand the building process, what the Buddha calls dependent origination and that's wrapped up with our understanding, with our experience <coughs> and understanding of samatha. When the Buddha described the jhanas, I talked about the jhanas last night, he, he actually used a very, at first it's a very odd sounding phrase, but he said, 
These are perception attainments. And at first that sounds like, why is he calling it that? Why doesn't he call it capacities of consciousness or far out states that you can get into, whatever. He's very, again, very precise. It's perception attainments. And, And this is what I want to really explore in the talk. Going back to a little bit what I said last night with the jhana, jhanas. The first jhana, and even this comfortable feeling we begin to have, suffusing, spreading that comfortable feeling a little bit in the body, the usual sense of the body that we have, the usual experience of the body, which is, here I have toes and they're very sharply defined and I end here, etc. That all begins to get a little more amorphous, a little more um, open, fluid, less defined. And the body, experience of the body, becomes to be this pleasant feeling. My, my perception of the body becomes a pleasant feeling. And then as the jhanas deepen, my perception actually of the body still becomes happiness. It's almost as if the body has become happiness. And then the body has become peacefulness. And the body has become stillness. They're increasingly refined perceptions of the body. Again, this, this actually takes quite a lot of doing it to see what's going on. It's not an obvious way of looking at it at first. And this is again one of the, the strokes of genius of the Buddha. Sometimes it just uh, completely uh, unbelievable, uh, kind of radically different insight. Very briefly, the, the fourth jhana is actually not the end of the story. There are actually four more, some of you know, very briefly described. Fourth jhana, nothing but stillness there. And the body is kind of dissolved in the stillness. Very, very refined sense of the body. That also can begin to get even more refined until all that's left is space. And there's no perception of solidity anywhere, not here or out there. And even if one has one's eyes open and does it with eyes open, it's like you're not really perceiving any solidity or forms anywhere. And it's called the realm of infinite space. And that's really all there is. And one's absorbed and kind of dissolved in that infinite space. Tremendous sense of freedom in it. Also a very mystical sense of oneness. I'm just going to go very briefly through these. That deepens again. And one passes beyond the space and all there is is an infinitely pervading consciousness. So some of this is really on, on the edge of what we, without a lot of meditation experience, what one might be able to imagine. There's nothing but consciousness. Nothing but con- just knowing, knowing. In, incredibly uh, beautiful, mystical uh, experience. And even that deepens. And the consciousness fades. And there's nothing but a sense of nothingness. One is just, it's the realm of nothingness. One is just totally struck and, and kind of dissolved in nothingness. There's just nothingness. And that's the seventh one. And even that, one goes beyond even that and in, enters the realm of what's called neither perception nor non-perception. And this is really on the edge of language. When there's nothing, the mind is still perceiving a sense of nothing. So it's very extremely refined, extremely subtle. There's not even a sense of perceiving movements of mind or... or any factors of mind or anything like that. And and then one's gone gone really to the edge of perception. It's like the mind isn't making anything or nothing at that point. But one's still, it's almost just the most possible refined thing. And one is, in a way, struck by this inability of the mind to, is it a perception or is it not a perception? It's incredibly refined. just briefly as well, in the fifth jhana there's, there's a, a really mystical sense of oneness. Uh, there's a kind of, f- phys- all the physicality in the universe is kind of one substance. One really sees that in one's heart in a very deep way. In the sixth jhana, the infinite consciousness, it's all one mind. So all, all this, all this stuff, all, all this is kind of just the play of one mind. And that, that becomes a very real, um, almost palpable perception. Some, so these are, oh, if one repeats them, they're incredibly deeply transforming long term. Now, 
all samadhi and all jhanas, whether it's jhana or not, all samadhi is a kind of relief and release. So when there's samadhi, we've actually been released from something and there's a kind of relief at that release. As I said, there's a relief, uh, even if one's a little bit scared at first, one gets used to it. And then there's a relief at letting go of the story. There's a relief at letting go of the agitation. There's a relief at letting go of the hindrances. So when one's completely let go of the hindrances, that's also the first jhana, but there's, the Buddha also talked about them as stages of release and relief. But that's true of even non-jhanic samadhi. So there's a real spectrum here. Relief and release. And with that, a sense of freedom. So again, this, this isn't something one picks up on at first. But in one state of calm, on, on this retreat, even when it feels calm, just having a look sometimes, is there not also a little bit of a sense of freedom there? One's actually been freed from something and released from something. If we talk about the jhanas, in each state, something fades. Something fades from awareness. So the hindrances fade first, and then in the second jhana, thought fades. And in the third jhana, rapture fades. And uh, you know, before even pre-jhana, like I said, the story has begun to fade, and etc. Emotional agitation has begun to fade. There's just a, a kind of gentle continuum of things fading. Once you've got to, say, the fifth jhana, the infinite space, what's faded is materiality, solidity, form. And, and one keeps going until in, in the nothingness, for instance, thing, thingness, the thingness of things has faded from experience. One no longer is perceiving things. One no longer is in a, a world of things. That's gone. Which is wonderful, but there's also insight there. And in, Again, please see this all as a continuum. So I am talking about the jhanic level of things, but it's also operating just at a level of, of more relative... Uh, everyday calm there's insight here and there's a kind of freedom that happens afterwards with with time that comes from that insight one begins to see one on a retreat like this or in in one's practice hindrances and then they go and there's calmness and then there's hindrances and then there's calmness and one learns over time somehow like i said when i was talking about they're not that believable they're not kind of somehow that real. One begins to get a sense, for instance, that that negative emotion, that pain in the body even, that doesn't actually have to be there. It doesn't have to be there. One is moving in and out of a negative agitation, say, or hindrance or whatever, or, or physical pain, moving in and out, and one begins, an insight begins to drop. That actually doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to be there. It's not actually a given. It's not a given. It's not something that's an independent reality. One begins to get a sense how the mind is actually fabricating it. How it's actually fabricating emotional difficulty, hindrances, even physical pain, uh, how it's actually fa- fabricating as one goes deeper and deeper into this, solidity, thingness, etc. All of that one begins to get a sense actually fabricated. Is this making sense? There are also with Samatan, I'm, I'm not sure, perhaps you might have even noticed a, a little bit so far, um, but certainly as one goes uh, in, into the jhanas, etc., there are kind of after-images of, of a jhanic state sometimes. So let's take the peacefulness of the third jhana, or it could be just the calmness that one's in now. And one goes into that state and one emerges, and then one goes for a walk or a cup of tea and a wander on the front lawn or whatever it is. And it begins, sometimes it seems as if that peacefulness is imbued in the universe. It's almost as if the, the actual reality of the universe is peacefulness. It, it, it washes over everything. Everything speaks of peacefulness. I think I said that last night. One goes in and out of this, and in and out, and in and out, and in and out. And soon, or at some point, our notions of reality begin to get questioned. How is the world? 
is it is it peaceful or is it is it not what is actually the reality here we begin to get a sense that our and similarly with let's say take it even deeper the space one goes in and out of perceiving a sense of solidity and not perceiving a sense of solidity so much that it undermines one one's given an unquestioned assumption in the solidity of things. One's gone in and out so much that that perception begins to be undermined. And in Dharma language we say the perception is empty. It doesn't actually, um, it's not actually a real thing. It's empty. I perceive the solidity and of course it's real on one level but one begins to see it's something the mind is actually giving to experience. This takes time. It takes uh, a lot of doing samadhi and other practices and a lot of kind of going in and out. But please remember, it's one thread of insight I'm talking about. I'm talking it ping-ponging from different levels and depths, but I'm actually talking about one, one thread from the everyday, most common, all, all the way to the deepest. It takes time to absorb this. It takes time to realize its significance as well. At first it seems like, well... Okay, sure. And I'm not sure even now as you're listening, you may be like, yeah, I can kind of see that. Okay, you know. <laughs> I really don't know, but maybe. And it, it would certainly be possible that a person listens that way. It takes time to actually realize that this is of massive, massive, massive significance. There was a, another work retreat in, a while ago and she was doing some samatha practice as part of her work retreat and she was beginning to sp- experience some well-being in the body and being able to spread that, etc. And then she sat a group weekend retreat and she was sitting and there was leg pain. She got into some real uh, knee pain or, or in her hip or something. And they were doing a different kind of practice. And then suddenly, in the middle of a sitting, she remembered what she'd been doing with the well-being and spreading it. And she just started to remember the well-being, just to remember it. And then the leg pain went. And what replaced it was a sense of well-being. And she was enjoying that. But then she thought, am I cheating? (laughs) Am I cheating? I'm not... Being with what is, is what she came and told me. I'm not being with what is. And this notion of being with what is, being with things as they are, is such a central one in the Dharma. But as I'm sure I've said already on this trip, there's actually much more to it than that. There's much more than meets the eye here. So she could have said, well, you know, things are impermanent. That's what we hear all the time, isn't it? Things change. And so, sure, there was leg pain, and then it changed. And I had an insight into impermanence. I saw that things change. But actually, something else was going on, and it was, a, I would say, a much deeper potential insight than, than, than the insight into change. So sure, things change, and it's important to see that, and that's a very important level of insight meditation. But the more important insight is that our perceptions are what the Buddha calls dependent arisings. They depend. What we perceive in the body, out there, in our mind, in a so-called reality, depends on our mind state. It depends on factors in the mind. That's actually a potentially extremely deep insight, and in a way a lot more significant than the insight into, into change, which is still important, of course. So anything, anything external, so-called, or internal, any pain even, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is, the Tibetans have a way of saying emptiness. It means it doesn't exist kind of from its own side. It takes the mind to kind of see it one way or another. It doesn't exist from its own side. It's empty. The perception is empty. We talked about this, this work retreat and uh, and, and myself, and She was kind of like, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And then it was interesting, and I probably, probably just left it or whatever. And she was here for quite a while. And it was interesting just to notice how o- over time she would forget that. And I would you know, prod her a little bit, or she would remember by herself, and she would forget it again. And she would forget its significance and remember it and forget it. And her initial reaction was, I don't know if I'm ready to actually go near that kind of questioning of reality. But even then, it was like this forgetting. And it, 
my point is that it actually takes time. So it may sound like, mm, there's not much, okay, you know, all right, or it's just too weird or something. It takes a lot of time to absorb this and to actually realize its significant significance. So at first, samatha, concentration, calmness, and vipassana, insight meditation, seem like two different things. And I, I, I know for some of you have done insight meditation before, you come on a retreat like this, and, and one thinks, wow, I'm really doing something different now. As it goes deeper, we begin to see that the samatha feeds the vipassana. The samatha feeds the insight, and the insight actually feeds feeds the calmness, feeds the concentration. They're mutually reinforcing and actually they begin to blend into each other. They only seem different at first. One of the ways I particularly like to sort of describe insight meditation is what insight meditation is, is actually learning or developing, put it this way, developing ways of looking that bring letting go or developing ways of letting go or developing ways of looking that bring freedom to me that's actually what insight meditation is more than a kind of just being with what is although of course that can be part of it so this morning one of the things I dropped out there was here's some unpleasantness here's some pain in the body some pain what happens if I notice my reaction to it and I, I begin to work with just relaxing that aversion that when there's unpleasantness there's going to be aversion what happens when I relax that aversion well one of the things that happens is the is the suffering begins to drain out of the experience but another thing that begins to happen is the mind calms down samatha comes and another thing, as part of that samatha, wrapped up in that samatha that, that can, can happen, is the unpleasantness begins to fade. The actual unpleasantness begins to get less unpleasant. If I take as one of my insight meditations or ways of looking, I'm just contemplating the impermanence. I'm just looking and seeing change over and over. Change, change, change. I'm only interested in seeing change. That too should actually, and, and does, lead to samatha. There's a calming of the mind when one does that. There's a letting go. And correspondingly, there's a kind of quietening of what was difficult. A change in the perception. Another possibility is, and I'm running through these very quickly and just throwing out possibilities, but... Another one is regarding things as not me or mine. They're not myself. So something comes up and it's someone was saying in, in, in an interview today, oh, it's just that character again. It's, it's, not, it's just that voice in my head. I see, it's almost like saying it's not me, it's not mine. Well, you can do that with everything. You can do that with body sensations, thoughts, mind states, moods, the whole, the whole spectrum of experience. Just, it's just not me, not mine. It's just something that's passing through. It's just something that's happening. And again, as one does that, there's a calming and there's a change in the perception of things. They actually begin to fade a little bit. So if we think about what is it that builds experience and particularly builds suffering, well, let's go back to a more, again, I said ping-ponging different levels now. Let's go back to a more mundane level. How often do I rope my story in or start cycling my story, the story of my life and my future and my past, in a way that's actually compounding and building suffering? How often does that happen? Are you familiar with doing that? Or ident- identification. It's like when I, this is a, a leg pain and it, it's, it's my leg pain and I bet no one else has leg pain here. Somehow the self is identified with it and actually that process of identification builds. It builds the experience and it builds the suffering. Again, if I'm reacting to something, if I'm aversive to what's unpleasant, it's building the experience and building the suffering. And these kind of factors can be woven so subtly, in fact they are woven so 
so subtly in our attention. So sometimes we can feel, I'm just being mindful of this pain. I'm just being with my emotion of grief. I'm just being with my fear. But there's factors that are hidden, wrapped up in attention, that are actually exacerbating, compounding, building the thing. And one of the agendas of insight meditation is actually to begin seeing what they are and being able to let go of them. I threw out another funny one this morning. I don't know if anyone picked it up or not. This business of dicing tofu and carrots. Did anyone try that? Okay. You may have found, I don't know, you may have found that actually had quite an impact. I don't know. Of course, one could be coming out of aversion. But the mind, one begins to see, if I dice it up in the mind, actually the solidity, the sense of this pain being lodged in the shoulder or whatever it is, it can actually just free up and suddenly it's not there or it just dissolves a little bit. What's happening? The mind is making something solid. The, the mind is glomming something together. It's gluing something together. And that's one way of defining what a mind is. Minds are what glom things together. That's what minds do. We don't, the thing is, we don't realize it. We think the mind is here receiving experience. The mind is actually fabricating, this is the Buddha's words, fabricating experience and concocting experience by glomming things together. <laughs> I'm not sure why it's funny, but anyway. Um, it's, not, it's not an English word. <laughs> Gluing things together, sticking things together, fabricating things, building things, sticking bits of plasticine. Boom. That's what glomming is really a plasticine word. Do you have plasticine? <sighs> Hard work. Okay. Um, Sticking bits of plasticine together, that's what the mind does. And we, we take what it then perceives as a reality. Inner or outer, then we take it as a reality. And one can see, as one does that, dices things up, well, samadhi can come. And, and again, the perception changes. Or, you know, things I've thrown out again in the retreat. Just staying with the pleasant. Staying with the pleasant. Not getting pulled in with the attention to the unpleasant. Here's another one. I can't actually even remember if I said it. You've got an area where it's either unpleasant or actually it's, it's a kind of... You're not really sure what it is. Something's going on there in the body. Something's going on. And you're kind of looking at... Someone actually shared this in a, in a group. Something's going on. You're looking at it. Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? And... In a way, one way of seeing that is actually there's, there's different frequencies going on at the same time. There's a kind of pleasant frequency and an unpleasant, and they're kind of mixed. And one can develop the skill, develop the art of fine-tuning the radio uh, tuner and tuning in on the pleasant. And what happens? This perception that was sitting on the fence of pleasant or unpleasant actually goes into the pleasant. Or, sometimes if you really develop this skill, even when it's unpleasant, you can begin to see something as pleasant. There's something about attention and perception. Actually, attention is building things. The mind attending to things is actually gluing, glomming things together. If, just briefly, if one holds that reflection in one's mind over and over and just keeps looking at things and and kind of saying, you're glommed together, you're glommed together, you don't really, you're something that my mind is putting together, or you could shorthand that and just say, you're empty, you're empty, you're empty. That's an insight way of working. It's a very deep insight way of working. What happens is the mind ends up perceiving no thing, nothing, and ends up in the seventh jhana. One could say, go further and say, it's just a perception, it's just a perception, even a perception of nothingness is just a perception. And then one will, again, using an insight way of working, end up in the 
neither perception or non-perception. Samatha feeds insight and insight feeds samatha. They're actually inextricably linked, inextricably woven together. So the Buddha has this word, Nibbana, Nibbana, N-I-B-B-A-N-A in Sanskrit, Nirvana, N-I-R-V-A-N-A. And so that's the goal of the path. That's, that's why we're practicing, the end of suffering. But it, one of his descriptions of Nibbana is Sabbe Sankara Samato. Sabbe Sankara Samato, which translation means all fabricated things calmed. The calming, the, the quieting of all fabricated things. And in a way, again, it takes a lot of, I'm sort of explaining, pointing at a direction here, that, that it takes a lot of samatha to actually begin to see this. That there's something that starts with just coming back to the breath and letting go of the story and letting go of the story, that one's actually fabricating less, fabricating less. And a process that just fabricating less, fabricating less, and things and the self and the world get quieter and quieter, quieter and quieter, and one, as it goes through the jhanas, etc., etc., thing, things and the world and the self are getting quieter and quieter, and all the way to the neither perception or non-perception, and then even more to sabbe sankara samato, to nibbana, what the Buddha calls the cessation of perception. And he says, that dimension should be known, where, he says, where vision stops and um, the perception of form fades, where hearing stops. and the, Everything of our, five sen- our six senses, actually internal mental perceptions as well, that fades. And one's, one's actually not fabricating any perceptions anymore. And he calls this Nibbana, or the deathless, the deathless, the unconditioned, the unfabricated. And he says, there I declare, there I declare, is no coming, no going, no stopping, no passing away, and no arising. It is not established, it is without foundation. It continues not, it doesn't even exist in time. It has no object, and it is without support. This indeed is the end of suffering. One has gone completely beyond the realm of what the conventional mind can know. To the unfabricated, or you could say that the mind is not fabricating, and at that point it's not even fabricating itself, because minds is also something fabricated. Sometimes uh, the Buddha described this as awareness without an object. Awareness has actually gone beyond kind of seeing anything at all or making any object at all, even an object of nothing, or nothingness. And the Buddha says this is complete release. The awareness has been completely released from having to grasp on or hold on to objects. Building, building, turns out to be absolutely inherent, an inherent part of perception. It's inherent in perception. So there's something incredibly radical here. So when the Buddha had his awakening, it was something so radical what he awoke to and what we can awake to as human beings. As human beings, we can awake to that. We, there are, in a way, there are worlds, worlds of experience, and one begins to see, I can fabricate, or I do fabricate worlds. I can fabricate a nightmare world. Involve my story and my pain and, and the way I see things, and I build that up, and I fabricate a world that is a nightmare. And I can fabricate the everyday conventional world that everyone would agree on, and I can fabricate less and less. And in a way, the jhanas are still fabricated, but they're less fabricated. And in a way, the jhanas in these realms of infinite space, etc., they're fabricated worlds, but they're less fabricated. And one can go beyond fabrication. And one sees that actually even space and time, in the sense of the past and the future, and even the present moment, which gets you know so much weight in... in um, spiritual teachings, even the present moment is something fabricated, the sense of a now, a present moment. Things that we take so for granted, space and time, what, what more 
fundamental things can there be to our experience? We begin to actually see those two are fabricated. So, yes, we enjoy our calmness and our sense of well-being, whatever that is and however that, that deepens. But actually there's something much more significant. That's that we need to understand, slowly, slowly, we need to understand our deep meditation experiences. If we have an experience of well-being or bliss or joy or oneness, actually there's something that needs to be understood there. Otherwise we're not kind of milking it to the full. And it can be just an experience that the mind wants to get back. It's just an experience. We haven't understood something there. And the mind might want to get it back and it actually doesn't even know how to get it back because it hasn't understood this process. So at first, the samatha, to whatever degree, and including all the jhanas, at, at first, it seems like one's really fabricating them a lot. One's flapping and really putting in the effort in meditation and really huffing and puffing. And then you've got this calm, you know, this comfortable feeling and, and you're kind of holding it there and holding it there. And it's, like, it's a lot of fabrication, a lot of work. And eventually it moves to what I was talking about last night, where it's actually, they're, they're just kind of there, these states of calmness, deeper deeper and deeper states of calmness. And they're kind of frequencies that kind of exist all the time. That's the sense of them. And you can just tune in. It feels like, at first, it, then then middle sort of period is they feel like they're unfabricated. They feel like you're tuning into kind of different aspects of reality. And then the third sort of, spiraling of that is or rather the, the comp- other level of the spiral as it comes back is then you actually understand how they're fabricated even when they appear to be just uh, tuning the dial in. But it's much more subtle and deep understanding so we can feel sometimes in meditation I'm just being I'm just being <laughs> And I'm not going to do anything. I don't like doing in meditation. I like just being. And that's a, that's a very valid and actually very beautiful way of practicing. But it turns out, at a whole other deeper level, to be a bit of a myth. It's a bit of a myth. Actually, any moment of experience involves some doing. Now, it still could be a very useful kind of strategy at times to just drop all the doing and just be. But it turns out that it's, it's, it's a bit of a myth, or a lot of a myth, actually. So, what it turns out is that the mind produces experiences that it then consumes, and it produces experiences that it then consumes, and produces and consumes, and produces and consumes, and produces and consumes. And it just does that non-stop. It just does that non-stop. And then the Buddha comes along and he says, first of all, do you know that's going on? And second of all, is that really that nice? Is that, is that really what we want to be doing? Producing and consuming and producing and consuming. Or is there something actually a bit burdensome about always producing and consuming experiences? Even lovely experiences. What might happen if the mind stopped doing that? What would that be? So that takes a lot of skill, and that's, that's kind of the whole spectrum that I've been talking about. But so when we talk about emptiness in the Dharma, in a way, you, the emptiness is very, there's a lot of different kind of, I don't know, levels or depths to which one can understand that. But there's something about the samatha and kind of going deep, in, for, for some people who, who want to, going deep in this kind of particular avenue that actually unfolds a very deep understanding of emptiness, a very deep understanding of this fabrication process. And it comes in a way that it can really be, it's an understanding that can really be lived, and it's really livable. So sometimes, you know, one might read or hear about or read a text, and it talks about this unfabricated, this unconditioned, this passing beyond the world or this cessation of perception. or And it sounds horrific. It sounds like completely bleak. Why would anyone want to get involved in that, for heaven's sake? Something about the samatha, again, is that it's a progressive unfabricating. And one sees, oh, it's nice not to fabricate a little bit. 
And then if I can fabricate a bit less, that's even nicer, and that's even nicer, and that's even nicer. And it kind of allows that movement towards what, what the Buddha is calling Nibbana or the deathless. It allows that to be basically not horrific, not frightening for the mind. It's okay at a very, very deep level that the world of our experience is actually empty. It's really okay. The Buddha said an arahant, a completely enlightened being, is one of his definitions is someone who's understood perception. Someone who's understood perception, which doesn't sound that kind of glamorous, really, or sexy, but that, that's how we put it sometimes. And understood the cessation of perception, going beyond time, beyond space, beyond the now, beyond a notion of awareness. So there's something in all this that actually has very, very deeply to do with truth, to do with fundamental uh, notions of reality and what is true. So what is real? What is real? In the Dharma, the primary question is what's leading to suffering and what's not. But wrapped up with that question is what is actually real? What's really real? What is reality? Am I suffering over something that's actually not real? That's what emptiness means. That's the point of emptiness, to realize that something that I may be suffering over is actually not as real as it might seem. What is real and what is not fabricated? What is not concocted, not glommed together, not built? Is there even something that's not fabricated? For some people, for some people, these are going to be burning questions, like passionately alive, deep, driving questions in, in, in one's life. And, and they're f- fundamental to our existence as human beings. What's actually real? So going back to that thing, is samatha escapism? Well, because of everything that I've said, actually, in a way, it's completely the opposite. It's a journey towards what's actually real, and more and more real, you could say, and a letting go, progressively, of what's less real, or what's more kind of fabricated, more huffed and puffed and built up. So this, this understanding of the Buddha, this understanding that the Buddha points to, is, is totally radical. It's totally radical. Complete, it turns our notions of everything upside down. The Dharma stands everything on its head. And the Buddha says, the world, it's not that it doesn't exist, and it's not that it, it's not that it exists, and it's not that it doesn't exist. It's what he calls the middle way. There's something very, very subtle to understand here about how things dependently arise, how they are fabricated. In this understanding is, is freedom. It's in that understanding that that freedom comes. And in a way, you could say again, it's one insight, one insight from our most everyday, we've just had an argument with our friend, with our spouse, with our partner, whoever, with our boss. There's an insight at that level that, as I say, there's a thread running all the way to awakening, to Nibbāna. There's a beautiful poem by Rumi, just to finish. It's called Wean Yourself. Now, is that an American word? (laughs) Wean Yourself. It's beautiful, listen. Little by little, wean yourself. This is the gist of what I have to say. From an embryo whose nourishment comes in the blood, move to an infant drinking milk, to a child on solid food, to a searcher after wisdom, to a hunter of more invisible game. Think how it is to have a conversation with an embryo. You might say, the world outside is vast and intricate. There are wheat fields and mountain passes and orchards in bloom. At night there are millions of galaxies and in sunlight the beauty of friends dancing at a wedding. You ask the embryo why he or she stays cooped up in the dark with eyes closed. Listen to the answer. This is the embryo talking now. There is no other world. I only know what I've experienced. 
You must be hallucinating. There's something in the samatha process very, very deeply that that it weans us. We wean ourselves off of uh, our attachments. We actually wean ourselves off attachments progressively off the samatha itself. And we pass beyond to a, a hunter of more invisible game. And, and in that is, is indescribable freedom. That actually is available to, to us as human beings.